0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, 10 Things About Hamilton, with special guest, Lindsay Chervinsky.
1: Our new series of discussions with Dr. Chervinsky about 10 things about this week, Hamilton, another week, Abigail Adams, then maybe James Monroe or Patrick Henry. But we're going to go through the the main pantheon of the founders and do 10 things that you might not know about them, but also open windows into their character and their achievement.
0: There were many things I learned this week, including sort of an interesting statement from Ezra Pound about Mr. Hamilton. You'll have to listen and hear what that is.
1: And Talleyrand, the great French diplomat, said Hamilton might be the greatest man of the 18th century. And if you listen closely,
0: you can actually hear Lindsay Chervinsky roll her eyes at that statement. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, we live in what many call Hamilton's America, a nation where government has its hands on nearly every part of the economy with good intentions, but many citizens would argue that good intentions don't always prevail.
1: Well, I like that government which governs least, so I'm not in favor of Mr. Hamilton's centralizing tendencies and his belief that government should be an active player in the economy and so on. And I certainly don't agree with his view of foreign policy and his belief that war, under some circumstances, is a good and even glorious thing. And if we must have government, and I understand that in your era you need more than we needed in mine, then that government should be as local as possible. And so his view that the central national government should be supreme, in fact, he wanted to reduce the states to mere administrative units to swallow them up, essentially, uh, that not only bothers me and offends my personal view of what the genius of America is, but it is almost certainly going to lead to bureaucratic overreach, heavy taxation, too much regulation, and even possibly the beginnings of despotism and tyranny. So uh, I, I think Hamilton was a genius, but I don't think that he was a, a good American in his outlook.
0: Sure, I know you had a, a vision, an economic vision, for America, and a a vision of how government would work in America. How practical would that be in my time, sir?
1: I don't know. You have some uh, global responsibilities, and the pace of of life um, is is, uh, dramatically uh, faster um, than it was in my time. You know, it took a ship five or six or seven weeks to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, We lived in a three-mile-per-hour world, and there wasn't really, even steam power until the very end of my life. So all those things are going to require a different idea of government and the social contract than the one that prevailed in my more Newtonian era. But I still think the main principle is that the best government is close to home, that local and state governments are more responsive and more responsible than a national government. And I don't think that one size fits all. I think you could do with more emphasis on the 10th Amendment uh, of the Bill of Rights. And I remind you, it says those powers not delegated to the national government belong instead to the states and to the people. I think I think that's right.
0: I think there are a great deal of Americans who would agree with that assessment. But when it comes to your economic vision um, I doubt that could work today. We've become a very materialistic society, sir.
1: Well, in my era, we all studied our Cicero and our Roman Republic and our Livy and our Tacitus, and we knew that luxury, and that's what you have now for most Americans, uh, is quite corrosive of liberty uh, because people become addicted to comfort, and they want those comforts to continue, and they don't ultimately mind very much what sort of a economy or government can supply uh, those wants. And so that would, I think, trouble all of the founding fathers, including Alexander Hamilton. But if, but you're certainly right that my vision of, of, of an agrarian America that largely avoids heavy industry and, and pursues an isolationist path in the world's arena, I think that probably no longer has any realistic chance of, be, of being a settled public policy in your much, much more technologically sophisticated world.
0: Well, sure, not to criticize, but you were fairly materialistic. You you had many, many things that you wanted and you got.
1: All I can say is if I'd had more money, I would have bought a lot more than I did. I love good wine. I love musical instruments. I love books, of course, and cannot live without them. I love scientific instruments of all sorts. Uh, I loved horse flesh and bought the best horses that I could afford and I could go on uh, yes I would say that uh, uh, the answer to this is do as I say but not as I do if you want to be a free republic
0: Thank you very much Mr Jefferson
1: You are welcome sir Thank you.
0: citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. The Jefferson Hour was created by Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and we're so glad this week to welcome back one of our favorites, Lindsay Chervinsky, author of a new book, The Cabinet, which Lindsay, I believe, is now out in paperback, so no one has an excuse not to own it.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. Yes, it will actually be out February 8th is the official release date, but you can pre-order it now at the very nice price point, I think, of seventeen ninety nine. So they made it very accessible.
0: Great book. Uh, highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. It was a great read. And
1: that's how we found Lindsay. I read the book, and um, I, I actually picked it up, and I thought, how interesting can a book on the cabinet be? And it turned out it was great and uh, we invited Lindsay to come on. Now she writes for Governing.com. Um, she's a regular guest on this program, and we're just delighted to have you here. So welcome.
0: This week, you guys are going to do something new, and I'm kind of in the dark on all of this. Uh, Clay, can you explain what this this 10 things is about?
1: I went to see Hamilton in London, and then I decided to do some reading about Mr. Hamilton so I went back to Chernow and I went to some of the other books on on, on on him and as I did I made these notes about some really interesting things about him that are not that well known but which somehow helped to reveal Hamilton's character and his outlook and so then I conceived this idea of 10 things and with Lindsay's help we're going to do a dozen or so of them we're going to do 10 things about Hamilton today and another time we'll do 10 things about Abigail Adams and, and and maybe on some other occasion 10 things about George Washington. But the reason I thought of Lindsay right away is because she's a brilliant and she's so solid in her knowledge base of this era, but also quick, quick, quick on her feet and loves to play with ideas and playing with ideas is so essential to my my notion of what history should be. And so I thought we would just have fun with this, David, and it will also give our listeners some new perspectives, insights, and information about characters that we talk about all the time, but we don't really know them all that well.
0: Well, I have a list in front of me of things that you you wanted to talk about. And number one was about Talleyrand and saying the three greatest men of the age were Napoleon, Pitt, and Hamilton. Uh, should we start there?
1: Talleyrand was a French diplomat. He <laughs> spent part of his life in the United States, in fact and he was at the center of a lot of the diplomatic activities of this period which is a really crazy period and he made this 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 big statement that the three greatest men of the age were Napoleon Bonaparte Pitt and Alexander Hamilton but then he went on David to to be even more interesting when he said if you had to choose just one uh, the greatest person of the age was Alexander Hamilton and when i read that i remembered having read it you know once or twice before but it really struck me and so i want to put that to our Special guest, Lindsay Travinsky, and have her comment on this.
2: Yeah, it's just hogwash. Um, (laughs) I think that's the only way you can say it. So first of all, as a little bit of background on Talleyrand, which I find so fascinating. He was in Philadelphia and lived just a couple of blocks from all the guys we regularly talk about Um, during the early years of the French Revolution. He basically fled the violence because he wasn't radical enough and he was concerned about execution. And he was buddies with with Hamilton, but he was also buddies with Jefferson and Madison, and he, they hung out in the same social circles. And apparently, on more than one occasion, Hamilton had way too much to drink in front of him and would tell him things that he really wasn't supposed to. Hamilton was, according to Talleyrand, a little bit of a lightweight So I just think that background is really fascinating because then Talleyrand goes back to France and we know him from things like the XYZ affair, where he sort of asks American diplomats for bribes during Adams administration. There is no doubt that Hamilton was brilliant. There is no doubt that he was incredibly courageous and his life story is miraculous. He truly pulled himself up from his bootstraps with the assistance of some others, But to say he was the greatest man of an age when the age produced so many extraordinary humans is just a little bit preposterous. And I can't help but thinking that that statement was really intended to make us fall off our chairs, because that's, I think, what does.
1: The last first word that I thought would come out of your mouth on this is hogwash, um, which is why I (laughs) love having you on this program. So do you think Talleyrand meant it?
2: No, I think he was intending to be inflammatory.
1: And you think... Who preserved this? do we know who is this Hamilton like Jefferson kept his anise where he was writing down gossip about everything? How do we know this?
2: So I actually don't know. I mean I know that Hamilton's family was incredibly dedicated and committed to preserving his legacy to preserving his papers. His wife Eliza lived many decades after uh, he died that that part of the musical is quite accurate and was very very loyal to his memory as were his surviving children. Um, I don't know if this particular statement survives through that particular archival work, but they were incredibly thoughtful about it.
1: It's good to know that our guests all have dogs. Um, Joe Ellis has one that makes appearances during his commentary. We're not worried about that at all, uh, Lindsay. So, okay, so hogwash, um, certainly an overstatement. Um, And we know that in the pantheon of great figures of this age, that Hamilton is in the top 20 or 25, but whether he's one of the top three, is another question. But I think it's interesting that Talleyrand said it for whatever reason. And if I were a Hamiltonian, I would want to quote that from time to time. That's that's pretty high praise. Who do you think was the greatest, if you had to choose, who's the greatest individual of the age?
2: So, I mean, I just don't know how you say anybody other than Washington.
1: I agree with you. If there's only, he is the indispensable man, right?
2: Yeah, he is. I mean, no one else could have been the first president. And that's not to say like, oh, he was so fantastic that he was the only one that could do it. No, it's just that he was the only one that had the national stature to hold it together. And he walked away from power twice. And that was so astounding that, you know, other great leaders of the age commented on it. And so I just don't think that you can really give an answer other than that.
0: On that point of agreement, I think we should move on to number two if we're going to get through all of these. And number two is that Hamilton wrote two thirds of the Federalist Papers and more than anyone else brought about ratification in New York.
1: And for a constitution that he didn't particularly like. Uh, He thought it was too weak. It wasn't sufficiently centralized, that they had made too many compromises with the states. So he's not, he's lukewarm, moving towards lukewarm as positive on the Constitution. And yet he played this fundamentally important role. What say you, Lindsay?
2: He definitely played an essential role in New York. I think that the Federalist Papers were more influential in certain states than they were in others. Uh, Certain states were sort of already headed in the ratification direction before some of the Federalist Papers came out. No doubt he was a powerful force behind that publication. I do think it behooves listeners to actually read the Federalist Papers because sometimes he could have used a, you know, ruthless editor. So yes, he did write two thirds of them, but he probably could have used fewer words.
0: I'm at a disadvantage because the both of you, I'll bet, have read every bit of the Federalist Papers. I have not. Are they, you know, a little sidebar here, are they still relevant? Is it something that Americans should read?
2: Well, they are definitely relevant because while they were the most brilliant propaganda that has ever been created, they have become part of the legislative tradition in a way that the historical record does not really support, and they did not intend. So they are not constitutional interpretation, but they are often treated as such. So they are very relevant for our current moment. Now, of all of the documents that we often reference, they are not the most accessible. Some of the language can be a little bit intense. um, And some of it, frankly, will put you to sleep. If you're having some insomnia, it's a good solution. That's not to say the ideas aren't brilliant. They are. They just are not always the most smoothly written.
0: It, it's kind of on my to-do list. It's one of the things that I, you know, I've got that book with, the, you know, uh, uh, interpreting them and all, but I haven't gotten to it yet. So you uh, you
1: are recommending that I should do that?
2: Uh, yes, and with my sort of reluctant apologies.
1: Yeah, I make a run at them every couple of years, David, and I, I start off thinking, I'll read this through this week, and then on about Tuesday afternoon, you think, wow, there are some slow movement here. But Lindsay, do you say the same of Madison, that he could have used a good editor?
2: Yeah, because so many of these, it's really important to remember that they were sort of writing in real time and they were publishing them in real time. So it wasn't like they wrote you know, Federalist 1 through 10 and had the opportunity to go back and read them and see where there was repetition or where maybe they could be more concise in some things. They would write one and send it off to the publisher. So even Madison is also... um, Uh, quite repetitious from time to time in a way that, you know, if he had the opportunity to go back and edit himself, he probably wouldn't be.
0: We have several minutes before our break. And in the interest of keeping up with the schedule here of 10 things, I'm going to bring up point number three, which is at the age of 20, Hamilton became a member of Washington's official family. And at 32, he was the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury.
1: You're a young woman, Lindsay. Uh Imagine th- being 32 and already being one of the most important figures in the government of a new experimental republic.
2: It does make me feel like a little bit of a slacker. You know, I think it's really important to remember that, of course, like their concepts of age were so different than ours because their longevity was was so much shorter. And, you know, Washington always remarked that he was so lucky to live beyond 50 because none of the men in his family had done so. That's pretty extraordinary, given that we just elected a president who was 78. So, you know, I mean, just thinking about sort of the difference in age and maturity and all of that, that being said, I mean, yes, he was incredibly young. It's a miraculous achievement. And he was recognized as being particularly young. And in fact, you know, some of the people in the Constitutional Convention kind of said, who's this young whippersnapper upstart nobody? telling us what we should do with our constitution. So his contemporaries did acknowledge his youthfulness as well.
1: To be so important at such a young age must have made the things that were annoying about him even more annoying, as you say, that who's this whippersnapper, that he's this wunderkind, and he's a policy wonk. And when Jefferson and and his partisans tried to bring him down...
0: I wanted to know, you know, from the both of you, I've heard both of you talk about Hamilton, and it's he's... A, a polarizing figure is my impression and correct me if i'm wrong but you were either With him or against him, pretty much?
2: Well, he was polarizing, but even those who were really, really with him sometimes went, oh, because he often just went too far. He was the type of person who just kind of couldn't help but sometimes put his foot in his mouth because he had so much energy and so many ideas. And that's great and amazing. And that was what was required in the 1790s to put the financial situation back on track. But then he kind of ran with it and went often went off the deep end. And so even his allies, who often agreed with his policies and his values and supported him, sometimes wished that they could sort of chain him to his desk.
1: I hope that when you said, Ugh, that was a direct quote.
2: <laughs> of course, of course it was.
0: And on that note, we are going to take a short break. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll be back in just a moment. To the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week's conversation is centering around Alexander Hamilton, and we're so pleased to have Lindsey Trevinsky as our guest, keeping things honest and direct. And, uh, thank you, Lindsey.
2: Oh, my pleasure. This is really fun. I always like when I can, you know, say that the founding generation was full of
1: hogwash. <laughs> uh, exactly. No, it's it's this is exactly what I had in mind, David. Because this is uh, this is what I love so much about Lindsay is that she's not afraid to say what she thinks, and she's not stuffy about putting it in some, some sort of formal academic language. With a, why would she be? This, but this is what we <laughs> need. This is what we all want. And I'm I think that this ten things initiative, is really going to illuminate not only the characters that we look at, the figures, but also the way historians process because. I made I made up this list. Lindsay might make up the next one. I have no idea what she's going to say on these things. She surprised me a considerable amount. She's denounced the tediousness of the Federalist Papers. She said that Talleyrand couldn't possibly have really meant what he said about Hamilton. She called Hamilton a whippersnapper who put his foot in his mouth. We're only at number four. Let's see what happens here.
0: (laughs) And number four is Hamilton wanted to enlist South Carolina slaves in the U.S. Army and, quote, give them their freedom with muskets.
2: I'm so glad that you actually put this one on the list because I think Hamilton's views on slavery and race have been a little bit convoluted the last couple of years. To be sure, he was anti-slavery as a political measure um, in that he resented the political power of the slave owning elite in the South. In theory, he opposed the institution, but he helped his family members sort of buy and sell humans. He benefited from the labor. Every time he went to George Washington's house, his coat would have been taken by an enslaved person. His food would have been prepared by an enslaved person and brought to him in that way. So it's very important to remember that these elements of his life were sort of deeply interwoven with every element of the fabric of 1790s life. The army is a particularly interesting moment because we see in the documents a divide often between northern and southern opinion on this, where northerners are more than happy to enlist the assistance of African-Americans, whether they be free or enslaved, and promise their freedom in return for service, and Southerners are the ones that really object to this, partly because of the concern about what might happen after the war, but also the concern about losing their labor force. And so Hamilton um, ends up, you know, agreeing with a lot of Northerners who say, "Hey, this is a really great way to get some, basically, some free labor." and um there there are a number of African Americans that serve with great valor and distinction one it's I think one of the key factors that starts to shift George Washington's thinking about slavery and the role of race in the new nation, but by no means was Hamilton the sort of ardent abolitionist
1: fair enough, but you know saying this thing was not just intelligent that here is a here's a group of individuals who could be very useful in helping us win our national independence. But there's something pretty provocative about saying give them their freedom with their muskets.
2: Yes, that's right. Because the the main fear was an enslaved uprising, of which there were many in the 18th century and for understandable reasons. Um, One other element that I think if any listeners have sort of waded into the history debates on Twitter, which frankly I don't recommend, I've been avoiding them, but there's been a lot of discussion over what um, some might know as Lord Dunmore's proclamation, which was a proclamation by the Royal governor in Virginia that said any enslaved African-Americans that made their way to British lines would be granted their freedom. Some people see this as, one of the rallying cries behind which white Americans took up arms against the British. I tend to think that the war was sort of already underway, and so it wasn't really that big of a precipitating moment. But um, a lot of people like Hamilton responded to that proclamation and said, hey, we can make the same offer. There's no reason we can't also do the same thing.
0: So let's move on to number five. In his first years in America— Hamilton was a serious, even a radical Republican. His youthful writings made him then indistinguishable from such others, including Jefferson Payne and Patrick Henry. But the war experience fundamentally changed his outlook.
2: Well, there's no doubt that he was definitely more radical when he started than when he finished. I'm not sure he was ever as egalitarian as someone like Payne, because I think he liked the idea of trying to rise up in the ranks. And if there are ranks for which you want to rise, then you need a hierarchical system. And he actually found that incredibly appealing. But I think the point about military service is a really important one and one that historians often overlook because they tend to segregate. Revolutionary War history and early Republic history. And what I have sort of found in my work is that all of the people that served in the army had a very distinct form of nationalism that was based on that militaristic service, that time together and seen basically Congress's ineptitude. And so it convinced them of the need of a strong national system. And so many of those same people went on to serve in the early Congresses because they had this commitment to a strong national uh, government and a strong federal government. And so I absolutely think that was a defining moment for Hamilton.
0: From what I've learned from Clay, I have this vision of Hamilton begging Washington, let me lead this charge. It may be my last chance to lead men under fire. Washington and Hamilton shared that bond. Jefferson had nothing to do with it, he was never a part of any military um, activity that I know of of any significance.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Jefferson did have some experience with the war, of course, because he was governor of Virginia and had the very bad fortune of being governor of Virginia during the two British invasions, which is, you know, pretty crummy luck. Um, but I do think that if you add in a couple of other people, and so if you look at people like Henry Knox, who was with Washington all eight years of the war, um, even people like Edmund Randolph, who had served as well, you start to see that there is sort of a bond there that Jefferson doesn't share. And I don't think it is any surprise, you know, during sort of the worst years of the Confederation when the government really collapses and is unable to do anything Jefferson is obviously hearing about this because he's serving on behalf of the United States, but he's across the Atlantic. He's not seeing how bad it is on the ground. And I think that firsthand experience, that firsthand observation and knowledge of the failures of the Confederation were quite informative.
0: But these guys faced death, literally. They faced death together, and Jefferson was never a part of that
1: correct. That's right. Uh, he fled away when uh, Tarleton um, attacked um, uh, Charlottesville and, and then came up the mountain to Monticello. But Lindsay, you know, there are lots of myths about the American Revolution, and some of them are really uh, unsubstantiatable. But the one about Valley Forge and the suffering, the men in rags, uh, inadequate food, inadequate sanitation, uh, lots of death, uh, cold, miserable. Um, sh- 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 shuddering and and shivering in huts um, and and the things that w- George Washington and Alexander Hamilton and others had to endure uh, during this long protracted war and Washington later says that during the Newburgh conspiracy to the angry officers, you know I've never gone home I've-, I've I've been with you every bit of this i never I never took a leave I never took the winter off and went to. Williamsburg or to, or to mount vernon and so that suffering and and the the inability of the articles of confederation to to do the minimal that it needed to do to make the war go well caused a deep disillusionment in washington and hamilton and others which they could never get over because they realized we barely survived this war and no thanks really to the congress of the united states as it was organized under the articles and so jefferson suffered during the war too, but not in in the same way. And I don't think that Jefferson, frankly, could have stood a winter at Valley Forge. I see Jefferson going home to Monticello and saying, see you in June. What do you think, Lindsay?
2: No, no, I agree with that. I think that that's really important. You know, And and I think that they also had a deep resentment that they felt that that service hadn't been appreciated, that sacrifice hadn't been appreciated. And that shaped an awful lot of their thinking in the future.
0: Well, that leads us right into point number six, which is Hamilton entered into secret or semi-secret meetings with British agents while serving as Secretary of the Treasury. This deeply offended Jefferson, but Washington approved of what Hamilton was doing. Both of them worried that Jefferson's Anglophobia might damage the American economy and lead to an actual war with Britain. So there's that argument between Jefferson and Hamilton and Washington siding with his military buddy.
2: Well, I do want to add a little bit of nuance to this point. I I think that Washington supported the idea of there being conversations between Hamilton and the British envoys. I don't know that he necessarily knew or approved of the language that Hamilton used. Hamilton hardcore threw Jefferson under the bus. I'm not sure that that's really what Washington intended because it actually made the administration less Uh, effective, less efficient, because it undermined the Secretary of State. So I think that in theory, Washington approved of making sure there was someone who was a little bit more uh, friendly towards the British, making sure that relationship was cultivated. Um, But I'm not sure necessarily the specifics he knew about. I do also want to say that Jefferson got his um, comeuppance for this because He did the exact same thing to Adams. Once Adams was president, Jefferson turned right around and was meeting with French envoys um, as the vice president of the new administration and undermining Adams' administration.
1: Absolutely. Just uh, just a little bit more on this, Lindsay. So, I mean, they all respected Jefferson, even Hamilton, and they realized his gifts, his talent for administration, his, his masterful capacity with the English language, his ability to take on work uncomplainingly but they all felt those people all felt that he was a little romantic in his attachment to France and his anglophobia was a little maybe too personal too pronounced and that he needed a uh, he needed a dose of realism and pragmatism and, and an understanding of how economically dependent we were on a continuing good or at least adequate relationship with britain and i think it's that that, that caused washington to have to be willing to have hamilton making some alternative communications.
2: Yeah, and I think frankly their concerns played out a little bit because Jefferson's deep mistrust of Great Britain did fuel his foreign policy once he was president and sort of led him to think that he was certainly not the only American that thought this, but you know that the United States was more important than it actually was. And so I do think it did go on to color his foreign policy and he never really acknowledge the horribleness of the French Revolution because of his love of France. Now, of course, they were all biased. I'm not suggesting he's the only one. But I do think that some of those concerns were actually pretty well founded.
0: So we'll move on then to number seven, which is Hamilton was right about the French Revolution. He feared that France was not capable of managing the transition without tumult and dangerous idealists, And that dangerous idealists knew nothing about the government.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the French Revolution devolved into chaos, anarchy, and incredible bloodshed to the point where people were writing diaries that the river was literally red with the blood from those who had been executed. And the cobblestones were slick with the smell of blood and guts, which is disgusting, but an accurate representation of what was happening I think there, you know, it's hard to say why one revolution works in a way that is more peaceful and one doesn't. The monarchical system, this sort of ancient monarchy in France, was so far removed from a constitutional monarchy that moderate reforms wouldn't have really done much. And I think that that's sort of what Hamilton was hinting at—that they didn't have a constitutional system that they could attempt to alter, but keep in place with sort of a new body in power. They had to completely, France had to completely, you know, start from scratch, essentially. And as a result, it actually took them several centuries of revolutions. They had several iterations before they were sort of able to get a constitutional system in place. So I think he was correct in that regard.
1: And Jefferson is conflicted here, I think, Lindsay, because on the one hand, he's very smart about these things. And he said, frequently the French aren't quite ready for a republic like ours. They should probably have a constitutional monarchy of the British sort, then really get serious about public education for a generation or two and do some minor reforms. And then later on and down the road, they'll be more ready for our brand of republic. And he thought that people like Lafayette and others of the young French aristocratic idealists were trying to rush forward too quickly. They were too enamored of the American model, and they, and, and, and the, the French population just wasn't ripe for that sort of a government. So, so all that's correct, and, that's, and, and Hamilton would, would, would agree with that, and so would Washington. But where Jefferson veers from these people is in two things. One, his romantic belief that somehow this is all going to come out in a free and well-organized republic, and of course, in, as we know, late in his life. He went back and corrected some of his correspondence from that period to make himself seem less naive about what eventually happened. But the second thing about Jefferson, I really want you to, we got some time here. We only have four more to go. Uh, I want you to just explore this a little, this capacity of Jefferson to say really positive things about blood. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He wrote that famous infamous letter to William Short saying, if there were one Adam and one Eve alive in every nation and alive free, that would be better than things as they are. The, uh, the idea that we like a little rebellion now and then, that, that that's a quality in Jefferson you don't see in others. You certainly wouldn't see it in Washington. You certainly wouldn't see it in Hamilton. What accounts for this, 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 this part of Jefferson's outlook or his character, do you think?
2: I think a couple of things. Um, first, Jefferson was a, I think, a, a a real optimist in the sense that he believed humanity would eventually, you know, create good things. Um, to put it sort of in 21st century terms, President Obama regularly quoted Martin Luther King Jr. saying the, what is it, the arc of justice bends towards freedom. Did I get that right? Those are obviously know, it's long,
1: but it bends towards freedom. Thank you.
2: Yes. I'm I'm I butcher these things like it's my job. But I think that kind of sentiment is a Jeffersonian sentiment. And he would have agreed with that principle Um, in order to continue to believe that. The second piece is that he was a master at compartmentalizing. He could sort of hold on to these ideas and ignore everything contrary to them and was really good at that in a way that sometimes I envy because I'm like, wow, I wish I could compartmentalize like that. The last thing is, and I do wonder this sort of gets back at David's point earlier, he didn't see all that much blood. Now, he was surrounded by the violent institution of slavery, but I don't know that there's much record of him ever actually implementing punishment himself. And he certainly wasn't with the army, and he didn't you know, see how prisoners of war were manhandled in person. And so I'm not sure that he really... Fully understood what that blood actually looked like. It's one thing to talk a big game; it's another to actually see it with your own eyes.
1: A couple of things yeah. there, Lindsay, that are really uh, pertinent to what you're saying. So, number one, uh, we know from accounts, and they're not necessarily reliable, that Jefferson did not use the whip on his slaves, but he took a little whip with him when he rode his horse around the plantation, and he would kind of shake it a little bit, like, you know, as, this could this this could be your fate. I uh, see so you. People don't hear you, but I see you rolling your eyes and doing another. <laughs> I'm review. sure
2: that they could hear it through the microphone. That's how hard I rolled them.
1: So that I mean, that's so Jeffersonian that he's he, he wouldn't do it himself, but he's gonna, yeah. he's going to have a little toy whip. The other thing is that you know that that Adams said of him uh, when Adams was talking about Jefferson's weirdly benign view of bloodshed, um, he talked about the the Genet affair and what was going on in Philadelphia in 1793, and then he says, but no doubt. Mr. Jefferson, you was fast asleep in philosophic tranquility.
2: <laughs> right? God, I love John Adams so much. He always has the best things to say about Jefferson.
1: Isn't that perfect? I mean, that's exactly yes. Jefferson, right? That he yes. sees the world from 38,000 feet and he makes a calculus. That is, if if 15,000 French aristocrats have to die in order for France to become a republic, in the long view of history, how many troops did Napoleon take to their slaughter? How many troops did Julius Caesar take to their slaughter? This is probably handleable.
0: Uh, This leads me to a question that I really want to ask the both of you, but we need to take a short break before I do. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, 10 Things About Hamilton with our special guest, Lindsay Chervinsky, who has the loudest eye rolls I've ever heard and also the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson. And I want to ask the both of you, if I might, uh, the French thing. Jefferson, it took a lot of heat because he was such a supporter of France and the French Revolution. Did anybody... Uh, share Jefferson's view about the French Revolution?
1: Now, let me start with just a couple of sentences. At first, the country, the United States, was kind of delighted by the beginnings of the French Revolution. They thought this not only is good, but it vindicates our revolution. It shows that this thing, this little, to use Jefferson's terms, the little flame that we lit on the 4th of July is going to liberate all the peoples of the world. And then one after another, the establishment figures got off that bandwagon and decided that, no, this thing was going in a very, very bad direction. And uh, I think Adam said that it was atheism and superstition and madness and anarchy. And the establishment figures more or less agreed with that. But Jefferson always had a substantial number of sort of second-tier and third-tier Americans who, who, who were fond of the French Revolution. Of course, they didn't know a lot about what was going on, but but he he wasn't alone by any means, was he, Lindsay?
2: No, he wasn't. And I think your your distinction is a really important one, which is that a lot of the people who were actually in the government, who had a pretty good sense of what was happening, even if they were still sort of pro-French in their diplomatic alliance preferences, were very wary of the violence taking place. Jefferson, among those, was perhaps the most willing to still stand by the French Revolution. And actually, you know, sort of distanced himself from from Genet because he thought that Genet would make it harder for him and for the nascent Jeffersonian Republican Party to do so. But a lot of Americans continued to support the French Revolution and support people like Lafayette, who they saw as this, you know, inheritor of the American spirit. Um, And that sentiment remained for quite some time.
0: Okay, so I've got us off track a little bit. I apologize, but with the two of you, I couldn't, I couldn't miss the opportunity to ask that. We're now at number eight, which I have been anticipating. Ezra Pound characterized Hamilton as "quote the prime snot in all American history."
2: So, um, when there was a uh, when Hamilton the musical first came out, there was the documentary about the musical and about the real man. And historian uh, Joanne Freeman, who is a brilliant scholar of early America and in particular uh, political violence, so lots of relevance there, but also sort of the premier expert on Hamilton, said, I'm not actually sure if I'm allowed to quote her on this because it might be a beep word, but she basically said on television that that his contemporaries thought that he was an irritating, arrogant a-hole. But she said the real thing, and they actually left it on television, which was pretty funny. And I think that's right. He was probably really, really annoying. He was frustrating and a know-it-all. And, you know, as Clay said, he was a know-it-all that was younger, that had more energy, that did things faster than everyone else. So there were a lot of reasons for a lot of people to not like him very much.
1: Plus, I mean, just let me say, I hold in my hands here, um, Joanne Freeman's latest book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War, Joanne B. Freeman, by the way, Lindsay, a former student of mine out at Pomona College, brilliant young woman, the field of blood, violence in Congress and the road to the Civil War. And there was a lot of it, more than we think. We have a few little incidents that we always talk about, Matthew Lyon and Griswold and so on. Turns out there was, um, Congress was a place where there was an enormous amount of physical fighting uh, during the buildup to the Civil War. Just one quick note. Before I get back to Pound, Lafayette was 17 when he came here. Talk about youth.
2: But the difference is that Lafayette came and intentionally positioned himself as wanting to learn, wanting to be helpful, wanting to offer funds and assistance. And he you know, very intentionally said to Washington, I want to learn from you. Hamilton didn't really say that. Hamilton said, like, I can do it. I can fix it. Let me at it. I will take care of it. Nobody could teach Hamilton anything
1: because he was so brilliant, but he also was arrogant. Um, And famously, David, he went to Princeton to try to talk Witherspoon, the president of Princeton, into letting him proceed at his own pace and graduate when he felt like he was well enough educated. And Witherspoon said, nuts to that. If you're here, you've got to go through the program. Maybe we can accelerate it a little. And Hamilton in a huff said, that's it. I don't want to be here. And he went off to King's College, which is Columbia, and talked them into letting him accelerate at his own pace. And so this is so typical. Jefferson spent five years as the favorite protege of George Wythe and and read 15 hours a day and did everything to please the master and wanted to get it all right and didn't want to rush anything. And here's Hamilton saying, if I can't get this done in a semester or two, it just ain't worth it. Now, Ezra Pound is a great poet. His cantos are great American poetry, but he he was a strange man, as you know, Lindsay, and he glommed on to Jefferson, Jefferson's idea of the hundreds, that we should so radically divide and subdivide the country until we got down to 100 farmer citizens. And there was kind of a a fascist period of Pound's life where he was really messing with the founding fathers and trying to build the case for a a kind of a benign American fascism. He was put into prison. Uh, He was mentally ill for sections of his life. He helped T.S. Eliot. Make the Wasteland, a world poetic masterpiece. He's a formidable figure, and he was not a Hamiltonian, as you can see. <laughs> the, he makes John Adams look polite, the prime snot in all American history.
0: So that's number eight, and I'm listening to the two of you, and neither one of you is saying, oh, that's not right. So I guess we'll let that stand as
1: as, as repulsive. There are some other snots.
0: Yes, of course. Yeah. We'll move on to number nine, which is? Hamilton wrote two pamphlets that crushed or at least seriously impaired his public career. First, the Reynolds pamphlet designed to salvage his public reputation by revealing his private failings. And then the disastrous attack on John Adams in 1800, after which even the Federalists reckoned that he was perhaps toxic.
2: So these are sort of the best examples of what I was talking about earlier, that he had good ideas. He just went way too far with them and took them way beyond the bounds of polite society. So to take the Reynolds pamphlet first, the core principle behind it that he wanted to prove he was above any sort of financial wrongdoing and he could be trusted, that's a very honorable notion and a good idea and and sort of a principle that we should adhere to. I've actually written about this subject that we should want that sort of deep desire to prove oneself above all sort of distrust about financial wrongdoing. To expose your marital infidelities as a way to do that is probably not uh, advisable. And at the time, marital indiscretions were, I think, a little bit more accepted in polite society, but you didn't talk about them. So, you know, not so much for women, but men had affairs and that was often what happened and they were handled privately. You did not talk about them. You did not publish them. There were not, you know, tabloids that had all this information. So by putting it out in the public sphere, it wasn't that he was partaking in activities that were so offensible that they would, you know, disqualify him. But he talked about them in a way that were really quite shocking.
1: So he has this relationship with Mariah Reynolds, uh, she and her husband are probably blackmail artists. The husband appears. He then um, extorts $1,000, which is a gigantic sum of money from Hamilton, and then makes it clear that if Hamilton keeps paying, he can continue to have this relationship with his wife. It all falls apart at a certain point. But here's how it came about. Uh, there was a belief that Hamilton was, was financially corrupt in his official capacity as the Secretary of the Treasury. And so he wanted to show that that is, whatever else is true, that's not true. And just as Lindsay has, has said, this is honorable. The problem was then how do you explain these unexplained expenditures? Where, where did this money go if it wasn't going into cronyism or insider trading or something? And so he had to explain it. And the only way to explain it was saying, I was being blackmailed by this unscrupulous couple. He probably could have said it in fewer words and with less detail. And I love the line, which I've quoted on this program before, where she comes to him and says... She could come to his apartment later, and he will give her some coinage to get back to New York from Philadelphia. And then he says in his famous pamphlet, when she appeared, it soon became clear that other than pecuniary, consolation would be acceptable. One of the great sentences. And Lindsay fell off her chair. I just want our- I did. (laughs) Fell off your chair. What a great line. Other than pecuniary, Uh, consolation would be acceptable.
2: It's so colorful. And, you know, I mean, I think the problem with this pamphlet is, as you said, it it's the details. He could have also potentially, if he had shared that information in person in Congress, that would have probably done the same thing in terms of. Um, you know, clearing his official name and it might not have been so public. I mean, obviously, it would have been covered by the newspapers, but by putting it in a pamphlet with all of the details on the time, the dates, and the location, and where his wife was while this was happening ooh, again, um, that made that <laughs> a lot
1: worse. You can imagine him coming home with the pamphlet and saying, Elizabeth look this this is hot off the press it explains the tawdriness of my
2: don't you wish you could be a fly on the wall when she discovers this pamphlet like what she was what she must have said like are you kidding me this is how you respond to this
1: well you know in in, in the in the musical they make a very 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 big thing out of this I think too big a thing and they have her so disillusioned that she's not sure that she can ever love and trust him again and so on. I think they overplay that. Of course, they do it for for good reason, but don't you think that they get a little extreme in this?
2: Well, it's hard to know. I think that that archival silence is perhaps quite telling. You know, we don't want to attribute 21st century ideas or morality to 18th century marriages, but we do know that there was a Theirs was a love match, and I do not doubt that there was a great deal of betrayal that was felt. How long that was held against him, I don't know. They certainly had reconciled by the time that he died. I would do a lot more than burn letters, let me just put it that way.
0: (laughs) What about this, what you call a disastrous attack on John Adams in 1800?
2: Yeah, I mean, so this pamphlet is, is so interesting because it wasn't so much that Hamilton was opposed to Adams, that was a problem. That wasn't a problem. There was a ton of politicking that was taking place, but it was, it was supposed to take place behind the scenes. It was supposed to be quiet because to campaign was inherently to be less virtuous, to be less little r Republican. So to speak so publicly and to be to campaign so in such a brazen way was to abandon the virtuous Republican ideals. And to also undermined the party so you know it's this there we we today still have this concept that once there's a candidate you're supposed to get in line behind that candidate because it undermines your electoral chances and that's exactly what he did and so even his federalist allies felt that he had only made himself look extreme and had hurt their chances in the election which he did
1: the most delicious detail of this story is that hamilton wrote this pamphlet But he intended it to be sort of privately circulated among some key figures in the federalist world.
0: And this was in 1800, and it was an attack on John Adams.
1: It said he was wholly unfit for the presidency, and he was erratic, and there were times when you actually had to think he might be insane and so on. Uh, that his foreign policy was uh, fundamentally misguided and he took long absences up at Braintree in Massachusetts and so on. But he didn't expect this to be published in the New York Times. He didn't want this to be widely published. But here's what I love, Lindsay. Somehow, somehow Aaron Burr got a hold of it. We don't know quite how this happened, but somehow this (laughs) private pamphlet winds up in the hands of Aaron Burr. And you said earlier, you can imagine the glee Imagine the glee of the Jeffersonians when this thing came out.
0: We need to move on to number 10, which is Hamilton was thoroughly disillusioned in the last days of his life. This American scene, he said, is not for me.
1: What disillusioned him so completely? Was it personal? Was it public? Was it both?
2: I think it was some of both. You know, he had really grandiose when he was starting his public service career in Washington's family in the in the military, he had really grandiose ideas about what he was going to achieve. And by the end of his career, because of the pamphlets and because of the way in general he conducted himself, he still was an influential figure, but he was never going to have the kind of fame and position and Uh, military glory that he had hoped that he would have. So certainly it was personal in that way. And he recognized that the type of glory he wished to have seemed to be at odds with what the nation was pursuing as its sort of ideal spirit.
1: His son was dead.
2: Yeah. Yeah, So he had also suffered a great deal of personal loss that was really difficult to bear. Uh, Professionally and sort of, you know, nationally speaking, He was alive to see Jefferson win and to see his Federalist agenda pretty widely repudiated. The Jeffersonian Republican victory in 1800 was pretty overwhelming. And the Federalist Party did continue to hold some power during Jefferson's administration, but increasingly less and less. And so it was clear that his idea of sort of the best men, and I say that in quotes, best men, Leading And having this sort of natural aristocracy based on merit, the society of the Cincinnati, sort of these people that could uphold the virtues of the nation and protect the nation's interests, that had been rejected by the American people. And it was a profound disillusionment for him.
1: You know, when Governor Morris came to write the eulogy of Hamilton after the duel in July of 1804, he was one of Hamilton's best friends. He may have been Hamilton's best friend. But as you know, Lindsay, he agonized over this eulogy and he said, there are so many things that are hard to understand about this guy and there's so many things that are hard to admire about this guy, that he was impulsive, he was self-destructive, um, he was arrogant, he didn't suffer fools, um, he overstated the case. I know I'm going to praise him because I loved him and we miss him. But it's not easy to write a eulogy of fair And balanced eulogy of of so extraordinary a figure. And I think that's really an important document because I think, you know, no one would have said that of Jefferson. Even, Even Madison, who knew Jefferson's faults as well as any human being, could never have said it's difficult to find ways to admire and praise this man. Madison didn't quite revere Jefferson, but it was on the road to reverence.
2: I completely agree with that. And, you know, one of the things that makes him so compelling as a character to study and and why I think the musical is compelling is because he is this deeply flawed, slightly lovable anyway, character. And if he wasn't so deeply flawed, he wouldn't be so deeply interesting. And I love that Governor Morris was honest about that.
0: And there you have it. Lindsay Chervinsky declares Hamilton slightly lovable.
1: She, but you, you should have seen her grimace before she got that <laughs> sentence out of her mouth.
0: This has really been fun this week. It's just flown by. This was a great idea you had play 10 things about. And uh, I hope we get
1: to continue this series. Who next, Lindsay. You nominate the second figure, man or woman, of this era that we should look at. John Marshall, Abigail Adams, Mercy Otis Ward. Let's
2: do Abigail Adams. Will you help oh, Will
1: you help good. develop the 10 things? I will do
2: the 10 things. I will send them to you.
1: How about uh, two or three weeks from now? Sounds great. And we'll do the whole series. And if people who are listening want to make recommendations... We'd love that. Lindsay, you were even more interesting than usual. You were pretty, may I say, snotty at times, but why not? (laughs) You weren't the biggest snot in the Jefferson Hours history, but, you know, as you say, the hierarchy is high. This was wonderful. I loved it. David, thank you. Um, And to all of our listeners, I hope you think this is as joyful a kind of discussion of history as it has been for all of us. We'll see you next week for another exciting edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program through the eyes of Thomas Jefferson.